Welcome to Gateway's Podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from one of our pastors. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. All right, we've lost our, the table that I usually use. That's why we're all here like, what's going on? Where is that? It's okay, then I'll just put this down here. <clears throat> well, this morning, um, I have the, the privilege, the task of, of kind of closing out this Family Matters series and um, the marriage conference that we had yesterday. And so as we start off, I want to ask you a question um, and come up with your answer and you can keep it to yourself. And the question is simply, um, if you were to just simply describe your marriage in one word, if you're married, if you're not married, then um, if you're younger and expecting one day, what would you want your marriage to look like? Um, or if you're older, um, just what, or you could talk and think about the ideal marriage. But if you are married this morning and um, you could describe your marriage just in one word, um, what and how would you describe that? Take a moment, just, just to think about that for a moment. Um, don't look at your spouse and say, miserable, don't do that. You know, but think about, oh, thank you. Um, think about what would be that one word. And this is a question that we hinted at yesterday in our marriage conference. Uh, Pastor David Sons at Lake Murray Baptist was our speaker, and he shared about you know marriages, and that if we were to describe our marriage, there, there's probably some common words that um, would come out. Um, many of us might would say <clears throat> our marriage is our marriage is good. All right, our marriage is healthy. That might be a word that, that you described and you thought, yeah, our marriage is in a really good place. Um, but what David shared yesterday, and I think it is the reality, is that most of us would probably say, and most people in churches across America would probably use the word fine, right? He, he shared that, you know, most of us would probably say, I mean, our marriage is, is fine. It's, it's, we're in a good place. Um, you know, we go through every day, we take care of our family, we, we, we talk some, we share time together. Um, we may, you know, look at our phones separately when we're going to bed at night. We don't, maybe there's a little bit of disconnection here and there, there's, but there's, there's struggles, but there's good times that, that I would just describe it as, as fine. And he said, that's probably where most marriages, if they were to describe their marriage, would be. And one of the, the goals and one of the reasons we thought the, the marriage conference was so important and such an important thing for us to do, and we were excited about getting to do it again next year, was we want to see our marriages in our church and in Gateway move beyond fine to something even greater. But you may be here this morning, the reality is, and you may have a different set of words for your marriage, you know? You may say that your marriage is, is desperate. You may say that your marriage is in a, a place right now of, of hopelessness. And so another reason that we had this marriage conference and another reason as, as I'm speaking this morning is to hopefully prayerfully move your marriage, even if it's just, just an inch, just a centimeter away from hopelessness into hopeful. And you may be here this morning and you may say, honestly, my marriage is on life support. You know, or my marriage has failed. It's already happened, it's done, and I feel like a failure because of it. And I wanna give hope to you as well this morning as, as I share, because the reality is um, the statistics are staggering. 
Uh, 50% of marriages outside of the church and inside of the church lead to divorce. And so in a room this size with this many people, there are many, many folks who have gone through the, the, the tragedy and the heartache and the hard reality of divorce. And so um, some of you may be looking back at that. Some of you may be remarried and say, man, I learned a lot from my first marriage. God used it and I can see how God used it to, to grow me, to change me, to sanctify me, to make me a better husband or wife now. Some of you may be going through it fresh. Some of you may are not still sure what went wrong or how things ended up the way they did. And for you, I just want to say that, that, that there is a purpose. There was a purpose to that marriage that God was using it. God can use it. God will continue to use it for his glory to sanctify you, to grow you for the future. And you may see it dimly now, or you may not see it at all now. But my prayer and our prayer is that as time goes on, you will be able to look back and see what God was doing and how God was using an incredibly difficult place. Because those are probably the realities. We have marriages that are healthy. We have marriages that are, that are fine, that are good. We have marriages that are, that are kind of in a desperate spot. Maybe it's just a tough season. Um, don't let that season become the standard for your marriage. Work to get out of it. Um, there may be some who are on life support. There may be some who have failed. They're on, the, on this spectrum here. And the goal with this series, the goal with what we've been talking about, this marriage conference, that I believe we've, we've, uh, we recorded the marriage conference yesterday. So uh, we're going to try to get it available online for those of you who couldn't come. So um, please, please take some time to watch that over the next few weeks because it was very good. Pastor David was wonderful. Our counselors here at Gateway, Larry and Sue, did a Q&A time and they were, had just so much wisdom that they gave to us. Um, so, so be sure to be checking that out. I'm sure we'll post something when it's available. Um, but just in yesterday's time that we spent, um, I could sense that God was moving people, moving people from Hopelessness to hope, from a fine marriage to this is the steps we need to take to move into healthy. Um, and so uh, the reality is that nothing that is great is easy, right? Nothing done that is great is easy. And this morning I want to tell you that marriage is a great work. And it's a great work because it is the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ in marriage. And we're going to look at a scripture in a minute. But remember, God instituted marriage and began the, the sanctity of marriage and this marriage covenant before the fall. As Bart talked about last week, before Adam and Eve fell, God was one of the few things that God put into place before the fall. That's how important it was. That's how special it was. That's how holy it was to our God, that one of the first institutions that God placed in this earth was marriage. And that's why marriage is such a great work. And we know that when God is doing great things and when there's great works being done for God, we know that Satan is there and wants to destroy it. Satan wants to, to tear down whatever God has been done. And make no mistake about it, Satan is actively watching and looking at your marriage, trying to find the spots, trying to find the little places, trying to find the weaknesses 
so that he can chip away at what God has built in marriage and in your family. He's wanting to take a healthy marriage and get it complacent enough that it moves down to being just fine. He's wanting a fine marriage to take a turn for the worse so that it gets to that point of, of desperation and, and a tough season that becomes the standard for life. He's wanting to take those tough seasons of marriage, make that the standard so that you get to a point of a marriage that's on life support. And he's wanting those life support marriages to end in divorce instead of reconciliation. And Satan is actively in our world doing that everywhere. That's why the divorce rate is so high in our world. That's why even in the church, 50% of marriages end in divorce. But this morning, I want us to commit to the reality that Satan can't have our marriages. All right? That, that what God has purposed for us and our husbands and our wives, for our spouses and our, for our families will prevail. That we will persevere as husbands and wives, as moms and dads. And that while Satan may try to get a foothold in our marriages, while Satan may try to wreak havoc, while, while Satan is looking for those weaknesses to try to come in and, and, and tear away at what God is building, we will trust in God and we will serve God and we will follow Jesus and we will persevere through the tragedies, the, the heartaches, the trials and the temptations. Because there's nothing more than destroying our marriages that can destroy our faith in Jesus and our walks with Christ and our, and our example to the world. So that's where I want to start this morning. I want to start with the recognition that, that God has a purpose for every one of our marriages. God has a plan for every one of our marriages. God is doing a great work in and through your marriage and your family and let's say reality, Satan is trying to tear that down. Maybe for many of us this morning, we felt Satan trying to tear it down. The past week, the past month, the past year, maybe Satan has gotten to the point where it's almost a lost hope. But I want to bring some, some hope this morning. And I also want to bring some victory. And I want to say this morning that wherever you are in your marriage, it can take a step towards more healthy. It can take a step towards more God, glorifying to God. It can take a step into greater relationship. It can take a step into greater serving one another. Your marriage can flourish when we follow Jesus in our lives and when we follow God's plan for our marriage. And that's our hope this morning. We're gonna be in Philippians. Philippians 2, so if you have your Bibles, your apps, however you access God's word, you can turn to Philippians 2. Now, before I share from Philippians 2, I want to read one verse out of Ephesians. And this was a verse I believe that Bart shared or um, kind of hinted at last week. If you remember, if you were here last week, Bart shared from Ephesians 5, and he talked about the roles of husbands and wives in, in the marriage. And at the end of that passage, Paul says this 
amazing thing, something that was completely unexpected. If you were in Ephesus and this letter came to your church back 2,000 years ago, and you started to hear Paul is talking about how the wife should submit to the husband, the husband should, should sacrificially love the wife just like the um, Christ did the church, and these things it would all make sense. You'd be tracking. And then Paul says something really different, and this is what he says, Ephesians 5.32 He's talking about marriage, and then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And so if you were sitting there, you'd probably be like, wait a second, I thought, I thought he was talking about marriage. Why, why is Paul saying he's, he's talking about, the Christ, about Christ and the church when he was just talking about marriage? I, I, don't, I don't get it. What is happening is, is Paul uses this term mystery in the New Testament to describe a few different realities. And each time he uses it, he uses it to talk about something that was hidden, that was, that was kind of kept from the knowledge of us in humanity until Jesus came, until Jesus lived his life here on this earth, till he died, until he rose again. And after that that event of the resurrection happened and people looked back and saw the amazing thing that Jesus did and formulated this gospel truth that changes lives. There's mysteries that become apparent after the reality of what Jesus did. There's a great example in Colossians. I can give you this real quick. Uh, Colossians, um, it says, I'm not going to find it right now, but it says, this is a mystery that I'm making known to you, that Christ in you is the hope of glorious in Colossians 1. And what Paul is saying is up until Jesus coming, dying, being resurrected, and then the Holy Spirit at Pentecost coming into the believer's hearts, no one knew or no one understood that Jesus Christ would actually reside in our hearts and that the hope of our entire lives would be the reality of God himself in us. And so Paul says it's a mystery that God had revealed. And so here he's saying the same idea. The idea of marriage was somewhat of a mystery until the time that Jesus came. And once Jesus came and lived his life, looking back, now Paul is saying, okay, now that we've seen the very face of God in flesh here on this earth, watched how God lived his life here on this earth, watched his sacrificial love day in and day out, the way he served people, the way he was humble, the way he was willing to die for the world and then rose again in power three days later. Now that we've seen that, I'm going to tell you something new that was not understood before. And it's the reality that marriage is a picture of that same gospel. It's the reality that what God was doing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years ago with Adam and Eve, when he instituted marriage, he was actually setting up a picture of the gospel of Jesus and the way Jesus relates to the church thousands and thousands of years before Jesus, so that once Jesus came, the church, the followers of Jesus in marriage could give the world a picture of the love of Christ. And so no wonder Satan attacks it like he does. No wonder our world is currently rebelling against the biblical understanding of marriage. 
No wonder there is a battleground day in and day out, probably in your own homes for your husbands and wives and kids and families and your love for each other and your relationships with them. Because it's a great work of the gospel shown to the world and Satan hates it and he wants it gone and he wants to destroy it. And so this morning, we're going to read from Philippians 2, and I want to share with you, this is, a lot of this is coming from and, and kind of uh, hints back to what we talked about yesterday. I actually did all of this yesterday. I wanted to wait until after the marriage conference was over because I wanted to kind of glean and pick up all these different pieces. And, and if you look at my notes right now, I typed out something, and now I've like written all over because this morning as I was coming here to church, I kept remembering things that were said last, last yesterday morning. You need to go see it. Did I mention that already? You need to watch the videos. But um, I kept putting more things down like, oh, this was good. Oh, this was good. This was good. So hopefully this is, makes some kind of sense. It's not too jumbled. But I want to be in Philippians 2, and I want to share with you how the marriage imitates the gospel, how the gospel informs marriage, and how if we look at the life of Jesus and the reality of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus with Palm Sunday and Easter coming up, how that can inform our outlook and our understanding of marriage. So let's jump right in to Philippians 2. What I want to do, I want to share two key behaviors, two key behaviors that we see in Jesus as he lives his life and how we should imitate that in marriage. And I want to share two realities, two key realities that the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection, teach us and give us hope for and understanding in marriage. So let's jump in. Philippians 2. So this is Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and this is what he says. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So let's stop there. What he's saying is basically is if you're a believer in Jesus, he's saying that if you have experienced the gospel in your life, if you've experienced Jesus coming into your life and comforting you with his love and sharing in the Holy Spirit, Jesus living inside of you, if you have understood that tenderness, that compassion, that forgiveness and grace of God, if you have experienced that in your life, this is what you need to do. So if you're a believer in Jesus this morning and you would say, yes, I follow Christ, then Paul is going to say, this is how your life should be lived. And this doesn't just apply to marriage. We're applying it to marriage this morning, but it applies to all relationships and it applies to any, any relationship you have in your life. This is what Paul says. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So let's stop there. That's our first, our first behavior that we see from Jesus that Paul is, is um, telling us about is, is like-mindedness. Being of one mind, having the same love. You could even say like-lovedness. I don't even think that's a word. But one in the same love, in the same spirit and of one mind. So what Paul is saying is husbands and wives, and if you're not married and you're going to be married, your future husband, future wife, one of the things that you need to work on and be intentional about in your marriage is having one mind, having the same love, 
Not a love for each other, but in your marriage, having the same love. And that should ultimately lead to Jesus and having the same purpose in your life. Let's be honest. There's probably no marriage that failed where they could say, well, we were in the same mind and the same love and the same purpose. Like we were on the same page. That doesn't happen, right? If you talk to, to couples who have been divorced, every single one of them were not on the same page or things would have worked out differently. And so one of the things to, to really protect your marriage and to make sure that it is, is living in a way that, that, that honors Jesus and that, that glorifies God and that shares the gospel and shows the gospel to the world is asking the question, what is my marriage's goal? What is my marriage's purpose? What if I were to sit down with my husband or my wife, with my spouse, or let's extend it. If I were to sit down with my family and ask the question, okay, fam, what are we about? What would the answers be? What would your husband say? What would your wife say? What would your kids say? And would it be in one accord? Would it be the same? Would you be able to sit with your family and every one of your family's members say, yeah, this is what my family is about. But more importantly, if you and your husband or your wife, if your spouse, if you sat across the table from them and had a conversation and they said, and said what do you think our marriage is about? What are the key important things in our marriage? What are we working for? What are we going towards? What is our purpose? Would you be on the same page? Would you be able to say the same things? And if not, it's a good time to talk about it, right? It's a great time. It's, it's a time that you could sit down and say, okay, let's talk about our goals. Let's talk about our purpose. Let's talk about our values as a husband and wife and a family. Let's get on the same page now, because if we're not on the same page, it's a place that Satan is going to attack our marriage. If we have different values, if we have different plans, if we have different purpose, if we have different reasons for our marriage, if, we're th if the husband's thinking this way and, and the wife is thinking this way, you know what Satan's going to do. He's going to come right between and start, <laughs> he's going to start trying to divide you right at that spot so that the husband's going to want to go more this way and the wife is going to go want to go more this way. And then the kids are going to go that way and that way and that way. And what's going to happen is Satan is going to destroy the marriage because you're not of one mind and one accord and one purpose. And so that's the first thing here in Philippians 2 is our marriages need to be like-minded. They need to be unified just like Jesus and his father in heaven had one mind and were unified in one purpose in their life. Next one, let's move to verses three through seven, two, three through seven. So Paul continues on, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Let's, let's reword that. I think this is fair to do this because he's talking relationships in general. Rather, in humility, value your spouse above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of the other spouse. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Verse six, who being in the very nature God, 
So he was, he had all reason to have everyone serve him. He had every advantage. He had every, um, like everything should have been flowing to him in a God like, you're my servant, you're my servant, you're my servant. Everyone serve me. That doesn't work in marriage, does it, right? But that's what Jesus had that right to do that because he was God who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, what did he do? He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so our next key behavior, key behavior number two is, is humility. It's selflessness. I mean, Paul's clear, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value your spouse above yourself. These two kind of work together, don't they? Like, if you're not in one accord with your spouse, if you're not in one mind, if you're not going in the same direction, if you've not decided as a couple, this is who we are and this is what we are about, what's going to happen is this selfishness, this, this vain conceit, this, this singular personal ambition is going to take you in the way that you want to go. And your spouse's selfish ambition, vain conceit, if they have that, is going to take them in the other way, right? If you've ever thought that, man, if my family's just getting in the way of, of what I want to do, if you've ever thought that, you know what? It's not your family. It's not your spouse that's the problem. It's, it's your selfish ambition and, and it's your vain conceit that is the problem, if you've had a struggle in your marriage, if we've all had a struggle and we've all had hiccups along the way and had tough seasons and in those times, if someone were to say to you, well, well, what's going wrong? And your first thought is, well, my wife or, well, my, my husband or, well, my kids, you know, if they would just get on the same page as me, if they would get right, if they would know what I'm, you know, that they're not your problem. It's your selfish ambition. It's your vain conceit. Because humility and selflessness considers others first. You know, many marriages, they, they fail because of this very reason. And for you, like you may, your marriage may be on the brink. And it may be because of this very reason. Because what, what our, our world teaches, and you probably recognize this and you've seen this and you may have never put words to it, but you, you watch what social media uh, shows um, like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. I know a lot of you guys watch that. Um, you know, any type of show that is out there and really anything on social, like it all points to this misunderstanding and this misdefinition of love. Because the love that is expressed on all of these shows is really selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's what, what society has redefined love as. Because love has now become, how does this person make me happy? How do you make me happy? If you define your marriage of how's my wife or my husband making me happy, you're in a lot of trouble because you're selfishly ambitious and you have vain conceit. And so what happens all across our society, all across the world, all sadly within churches as well, is you, you get into a relationship. This work, it works for a little while. Selfish ambition and vain conceit 
and that misdefinition of love of whatever it makes me happy, it'll work for a little while because you'll, get, you'll, you'll get into this relationship with someone who makes you happy and you make them happy and it feeds your selfish ambition and your vain conceit. You're like, yeah, we're both happy. Everything's great. And if it lasts long enough, you'll, you'll get married and you'll, you'll, you'll begin a life together. And then at some point, at some point, trials will come. At some point, something incredibly tough will happen. There will be some kind of circumstance. There will be something that comes into your life that just rocks you to the core and challenges your understanding of love and what love has been for you up to this point. And if your love has been built on selfish ambition and vain conceit and that person making me happy, guess what's going to happen? That marriage is going to fail and it's gonna fall, and it's gonna crumble down. And you're gonna blame your spouse, and your spouse is gonna blame, that's, that's what happens. You blame each other because they stopped making me happy, they did something to make me mad, they made me miserable, this person made me miserable. And what's really happening is both of you were selfish, probably, or one of you were selfish, one of you had vain conceit, and because of that, it ruined the marriage. Satan attacked that spot in your marriage and ruined it. But what Jesus says, that if you follow the example of, or what Paul says, if you follow the example of Christ, if you follow his example and instead don't consider yourself to be the one who gets all the glory, like, like equality with God, like if you instead make yourself nothing and you ask the question, how can I be a servant if I can um, in humility value my spouse above the other one and you change the question, you move the question from um, how can you make me happy to how can I serve you and how can I continue to serve you, that will change everything in your marriage because you'll now be following the example of Christ and serving your family. So that's behavior number two. Behavior number two is humility and selflessness. All right, and so now I wanna close with two, um, I guess you could call these two realities. Looking forward to, to the cross and to the resurrection as we, as we get ready to celebrate this, this Easter season. Because I feel like the, if, if, if the marriage is a picture of the gospel, and gospel informs marriage, that means the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus have something specifically to say to our marriages. And so I wanna to continue to read and I wanna kind of bring those out. Philippians 2, 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The first realization there is, is simply what we just talked about, that Jesus's humility and his sacrificial love and his serving went all the way to the cross. He was willing to die for mankind. That's how humble and serving he was. I think many of us and most of us would probably say, yes, I'm, I'm willing to die for my spouse. But how many of us don't do a good job of serving our spouse while we live, right? Like I'm willing to die, I'm willing to take, take the bullet, I'm really to do, willing to do the big thing. How about the small things day in and day out? 
That's where it's really at, right? But what the cross also reminds me of, you think about what happened on, on that, that week leading up to the cross. Like Jesus entered into Jerusalem with fanfare and they were singing hallelujah, worthy is the king. And they were laying the, the palm branches down and they were treating him as a king. And by the end of the week, he was being battered and beaten and persecuted and he was hung on a cross to die. So think about the emotions of the disciples, you know? What they saw in that week was the reality of human sin and the sinful nature of people. And so it reminds me, and it should remind each and every one of us when it comes to our marriage, because I've been talking about the ideals, the ideals of, of selfless love, of humility, of like-mindedness. We got to remember the reality. The cross protects us from this ideal of getting so far into the ideal that we don't remember the reality that each one of us brings sin into our marriage. And while we can say, I want to be completely servant, a servant to you, I want to be completely humble, I want to be completely on the same page with you, I want to do completely everything that, that I can do to live humbly before you, the reality is none of us are ever going to live up to that. The cross reminds us of our need for grace. The cross reminds husbands the grace you need to show your wife. And it reminds wives the grace that we need to show our husbands. It reminds us that when we come into this marriage, we're flawed individuals. We have sin in our lives and it's gonna be there, chipping away here and there at all times. There are gonna be days where, man, we've served well and we've been humble and we've been selfless. There are gonna be days though when we get selfish and when we kind of lose track of, of Jesus and we start to, to kind of get selfishly ambitious and a little bit of conceit in our lives. And we've got to be willing to show grace back and forth to each other when these times happen. And we need to be willing to communicate with one another when they do happen and welcome that communication. And so here's the last thing. How does the empty tomb speak to marriage? How does the resurrection speak to our marriage? This is verse number nine. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And in every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. The resurrection reminds me in general, but specifically in marriage as well, that God is in the business of bringing life out of death. That God is in the business of, of taking ashes and reworking those ashes and, and rebuilding those ashes to something beautiful. God's in the business of, of taking messes that we've made of ourselves or we've made of our marriage or we've made of our lives and redeeming those messes to become a gospel message for the world to see. The resurrection reminds us of the power of God to do miraculous things in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families. And so while the cross kind of keeps us from this, this like ideal of everything's gonna be perfect in our marriage, no, it's not. The resurrection keeps us from a hopeless despair thinking that all hope is lost. And I started out this morning, I, or, yeah, this morning I asked, um, you know, what, 
how would you describe your marriage? And you probably thought of a word or two and you were somewhere, somewhere on that, that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That spectrum, there we go, that spectrum. You were somewhere on that spectrum from healthy, great, probably a better term for that is Christ-like, God-honorable, gospel living, right? To on the brink of disaster, maybe full of selfish ambition, vain conceit, not very Christ-like, things are near the end. The resurrection reminds me that God can move your marriage this way that God can take a hopeless marriage, that God can take your marriage, even if it seems like it's in shambles, and God can do a miraculous work in it. And if you're here in the middle and you say things are fine, God can make your marriage flourishing and healthy and, and full of the gospel and full of life and full of love. God does that day in and day out. He brings life out of death and beauty out of ashes. And that also reminds me that even a failed marriage has a purpose. If you're in that situation this morning, that if you, if you recognize, man, our, my, my marriage failed because I or my spouse or whatever, man, we were, we, were, we were way over here. We were not in one mind. We never tried to get in one mind or one accord. We just kind of went our own way. We both got selfish. We both kind of... God can use that to, to help you see a way for the future. God can use that to grow you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ. So even a failed marriage, even if it's failed, there was a purpose in that. If you've allowed God to use that to sanctify you and to grow you more like Christ. But as we close out this morning, I just want to challenge each and every one of us to remember what a great work our marriages and our families are. Remember that it is a picture of the very gospel that should be the focus and the purpose of our lives. And because of that, when we live our, out our marriages and we live with our spouses in a Christ-like way and, and being selfless and, and being humble and, and serving them daily, and when we, when we um, become in one mind and accord and we, and we take the time to communicate with each other to make sure that we're on the same page, we strengthen up our marriage and, and God strengthens our marriages so that Satan can't get a stronghold in them. And so that we can share the love of Jesus and the picture of Jesus to the world. As the cross reminds us, it's never going to be perfect. As the cross reminds us, sin is always going to be a part of it. The cross reminds us we need to always be ready to show grace to our spouse and understanding. Grace and understanding instead of suspicion and judgment, right? That's what the cross reminds us. And the resurrection reminds us that there's always hope. Wherever your marriage may be, if it's healthy, if it's just, just fine, if it's in a place of despair, if it's seemingly at the end of its road, or if it has already failed, there is hope in the gospel. And there is hope in the resurrection that God will do a mighty work in you and through you and through our marriages. Let's pray.